Radical, your favorite Bitcoin podcast. I don't want to go among mad people. Oh, you can't help that. Most everyone's mad <laughs> What's up, everyone? It's your boy Kaz. I'm here to tell you about Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin is the best way right now to buy Bitcoin. They allow you to dollar cost average into it on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis and then withdraw to cold storage self-custody those keys. Don't wait for the perfect time to buy Bitcoin because the perfect time to buy Bitcoin was yesterday. Start dollar cost averaging with Swan and start sacking some sats. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash kaz. You'll get $10 worth of Bitcoin when you sign up. Hope you enjoy this episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. All right, what's up, everybody? Sitting here with Reed Womack. I guess uh, are you the uh, the Bitcoin Buddha? Is that what you go by? I just I just so I just had the Bitcoin Boomer. Now I have the Bitcoin Buddha. I guess I'm Bitcoin Biko. So uh, where did that come from? Oh yeah, so I guess I do go by that name um, on Telegram, and I have a newsletter entitled Bitcoin Buddha. Um, and I, yeah, his background has just come from my sort of two main intellectual interests in life, which is at this point are Bitcoin and, and Buddhism slash meditation. Um, so uh, most, most of my work publicly, at least, focuses more on, on Bitcoin at this point. But uh, uh, I, I keep a, an active meditation practice to remain centered <laughs> no i like it i actually i'm into meditating too do you actually do you uh do you do it real or do you use an app or anything like that <laughs> I, mean, I guess what i'm trying to say are you a are you a true buddhist or are you a, <laughs> or, not a not a true bitcoin are you a true buddhist <laughs> i think i think apps are great for a lot of people um i've never really found them particularly helpful for me but uh it's a super good way if people are frustrated with uh, sitting down and lots and lots of thoughts running through their head and getting pissed at those, uh, apps can be a good way to start. <laughs> How long do you meditate whenever you meditate? Um, recently, it, it's been fairly short, um, uh, sort of five minute stints here and there. But um, like this winter, it was you know half an hour, half an hour every morning um, and evening. So. Hmm. So I didn't plan to start it this way, but <laughs> so I want to hear your take on the similarities between Bitcoin and Buddhism. <laughs> oh, they they are very dissimilar, and that's part of the reason why it's so fascinating. <laughs> is it is very difficult, <laughs> or or very yeah, very difficult to get them to speak to each other. Um, and whenever I do, I'm very excited. And I can make some analogy that crosses between the two realms, but but typically they operate in different spheres. Um, you know, Bitcoin operates in the sphere of personal responsibility, the individual, property rights, um, and and more gener more broadly in, in the conceptual world. Um, and and Buddhism or Zen and meditation operates much more within the realm in the non conceptual realm in the present moment. Um, when you let go of a lot of these like concepts um, and and boxes around property or the individual, um, so they 
don't speak the same language, but every once in a while I can find maybe a word or two that, that translates. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Bitcoin's very low time preference. I guess Zen meditation is very high time preference. You're only caring about like what's happening in the here and now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time preference. That's actually a, a point I want to, I want to do some writing on and thinking more about, because I think that um, the way that it's framed, at least within Austrian economics is somewhat misleading in that people talk about time preference as valuing the future over the present. Um, and in the Buddhist mindset or sort of meditation mindset, that makes absolutely no, no sense. Like you, you can't, if you are valuing the future over the present, that you're just not living your life. Right. It is like you're right. clinging to something that doesn't exist. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that, yeah, sort of reframing within Austrian economics and Bitcoin, reframing the concept of time preference not to be like valuing the future over the present, but more so around valuing present uh, consumption over right. just over future consumption. Um, yeah, like making right. I think that's a great point. Yeah, you know, you're you're still on a low time preference. Because, you know, you're, you're not trying to just immediately gratify yourself and consume in the present moment. Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting <laughs> thought. Maybe I said it backwards. I, yeah, I think you did. <laughs> I definitely did. So, uh, so write your newsletter. I'm going to subscribe to it. Tell me more about what else you write about besides Buddhism and Bitcoin. I mean, 95% of it, of that newsletter is about Bitcoin. And then, you know, at the end, I say Okay, well, I would say, I would say, I'll take that back. The two of them together. What do you write about just in Bitcoin? Because <laughs> um, I'm sure that's what it's about. That's why I'm subscribing yeah, to it. The newsletter is about Bitcoin. And then after finishing each one, I sit, you know, I close my eyes and I focus on my breath for a few minutes. And then I write whatever weekly Zen <laughs> the like final note is some element of weekly zen where i like get super conceptual for you know spend an hour writing this really heady think piece and then just sit and let it all go and go back to my breath and <laughs> write the weekly zen um but in terms of things i write about i'm not an incredibly techie person um and i i I'm much more interested in sort of the game theory and economics um, of Bitcoin. And um, so it, it tends to focus much more heavily on that um, than on uh, sort of protocol updates, for instance. Um, just playing to my strengths and, and my passions. Yeah, of course. I find myself in a mix between the two of them. But, you know, every day it's just, you know, sort of flipping back between the two of it's, I don't know, do I, do I care about what's happening on the technical side or am I just focused on sort of, you know, the Austrian economics perspective of it, but okay. So getting to actually what we were planning on talking about today. <laughs> so we already, I already did a podcast on sort of, you know, why Bitcoin, which is going to be recurring, you know, cause it's, it's always need, always needs to be reiterated. Um, but this one's going to be more of like why Bitcoin versus blank. And it's not a great title, but that's what I'm feeling. 
So it's like um, a lot of the questions I've been getting is, you know, what makes Bitcoin scarce? You know, if you can make something else, like another another version of Bitcoin, you can fork off of the uh, the protocol and make a Bitcoin cash or, you know, all the other thousand versions of Bitcoin. Or what's stopping something else from with better technology from coming out um, and replacing Bitcoin or something with lower transaction fees? That one really pisses me off. I hate when people say that it's going to replace Bitcoin with lower transaction fees. Um, so we're going to talk, talk about a lot of things, but tell me what you think. And this can be from an economic perspective. It doesn't have to be technical. What you think makes Bitcoin fundamentally different than all the other shit coins? I don't even want to say their names because I don't want to. I don't want to give people names to look at. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good question, and um, and I think anyone who's, who's in Bitcoin tries to come up with a one sentence answer for that question, like why Bitcoin versus Ethereum, why Bitcoin versus anything else. You said it. Why I'm not supposed to say it. <laughs> Why is Bitcoin not not going to be overtaken by XYZ currency? Um, and people like Robert Breedlove or, or Newt Spanholm, um, sort of their one word answer is uh, it's it's absolute scarcity, and you could only invent absolute scarcity once. So so you cannot replicate absolute scarcity. And so the fact that Bitcoin, uh, like like you you can't create a new Bitcoin because it is scarcity incarnate and, and nothing else can be that. Um, and while that's sort of like a catchy and, and clever, I think, explanation um, and can maybe satisfy some, some folks, I, I don't necessarily think that that answer is, is fully true. Um, that I think other cryptocurrencies themselves can be absolutely scarce. Um, and in fact, many are absolutely scarce. You know, Bitcoin Cash will also only have twenty-one million. So, so it's right. not like Bitcoin is is unique in its supply cap at this point. Um, so you sort of have to go to other reasons, I think, for why it's why it um, is you know, has already won and will continue winning, and, and other things won't have a chance to catch up. Um, and I guess my my simplest explanation sort of draws on uh, Menger's idea of, of like the base idea of what money is, which is just money is the most saleable commodity. So whatever it is that is easiest for you to sell to the market, that is money. And and everyone wants to always make as few transactions from the good that they have, good or service they have through another commodity, money, to another good and service uh, that they want. And they don't want to make multiple jumps. Like you don't want to you know, buy one money, trade it for another money, trade it for a third money, and then finally use that money to, to, purchase, your, um, to purchase your hotel room, for instance, or your plane ticket. Like you want to you earn one, like trade your labor for money, and then trade that money for the good and service you want. So you just want one hop. It's the most efficient. Um, and that's why money's just 10 towards one, historically. Um, like given a free and open market, gold has his historically been, been the money. Um, so the reason of why you're not going to sort of make another money 
um, another cryptocurrency into money is at this point, Bitcoin is so far ahead in terms of its market cap and adoption that if you were to try to purchase another money right now, you have to go through Bitcoin to get that other money. And ultimately, Bitcoin is still more saleable as a commodity than that other money. So then that other altcoin. So, right. so if you try and, and buy any of the, any of the alts, BNB or Ethereum or Litecoin or Link or something. Um, you have to trade that back into Bitcoin before you can trade it back to a fiat currency. That. You have to buy Bitcoin first in order to buy that. I mean, there are some platforms right. where that's not true, but Bitcoin remains the most saleable commodity by far. Right. And and so in my mind, it's it's when people sort of get scared in crypto space and, and want to like preserve their wealth, they just move it back into Bitcoin. And you see this whenever we have bear markets that people... Um, the alts all sell off really hard. Bitcoin sells yeah. off a little bit, but not as hard as the alts because people just right. move back into Bitcoin as their like base asset within the crypto ecosystem. And so it, it will continue functioning as that base asset within the crypto ecosystem. Like we're going to keep having these pump and dump coins, I, I think really until central banking collapses, but none of them are anywhere near the market cap or distribution or decentralization or even brand recognition or have the infrastructure built of Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the most saleable cryptocurrency right now. And, and there's no easy way to catch up in that, like, and to overtake it. Uh, right. Right. And so I, I love how you talked about, or you mentioned Carl Manger, you, you are, you are rooted in your Austrian economics. That's for sure. Um, so, but I think what you're ultimately leading to is network effects. Bitcoin's network effect of it has such a first mover advantage and there's so much infrastructure and developers and money and mark, I mean, market cap behind it um, and users, actually people that own Bitcoin, that there's going to be no way for some other coin to, you know, say, okay, we're going to have 20 million hard cap <laughs> and we're going to come out and replace Bitcoin because our transaction fees are lower, which we'll, we'll get to in a second of why that's a fallacy. But I, I think that's what you're getting to, right? Is network effects. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, that's a very common way of framing it is that the network yeah. effects of Bitcoin are, are so strong and that other people won't possibly or can't possibly, or other cryptocurrencies can't possibly catch up with Bitcoin. However, when you frame it, as network effects, a lot of people think of sort of equities as a model for network effects. And so they think of, they, they make a, a comparison to MySpace, or they make a comparison to AOL and think, oh my God, AOL and MySpace had such large network effects, but ultimately they got overtaken by these other new networks um, that were much like, stronger and more robust and now dominate and and so if you just frame it as network effects sometimes you can get tr like trapped into thinking making it comparisons to, to other equity like network effects um where whereas money is fundamentally different like <laughs> money tends towards one yeah, it, you, yeah, yeah. you can't 
monies don't tend to have multiple network effects. Like it's inefficient to have multiple network effects um, or multiple networks of money. Whereas with equities um, and, and other social communication systems, it, it can be quite efficient to have, to optimize for, for different communication so that, you know, you have a Twitter for one type of communication that can build its network effects. You got Facebook for another type of in communication that can build its network effects. Um, and those two things aren't necessarily directly in competition with one another because they are, they are serving different purposes in different audiences. And, um, and money is different. <laughs> money is in competition with everything. And so if you want to overtake the, the best money that exists, you have to be more saleable than that money. You can't just be faster than that money or, or have one slight better feature than that money. Like you have to be more saleable than that money. Um, otherwise, you're going to get crushed. <laughs> Define saleable. Uh, <laughs> saleable means capable of being sold, essentially. Okay. So it's oh, okay, liquidity. Okay. How right. many people are willing to buy that money from you, like like trade their goods and services for that money? Right. Absolutely. And and liquidity is is sort of a uh, one way of measuring it. So liquidity is just how much day to day volume is actually being traded. That's like one mathy way of measuring how saleable something is. But there's also an enormous like saleability is is a qualitative measure of like whether somebody is willing to, to accept Bitcoin for your services um, or they are in exchange for services. So, um, right. So I actually read one read today on the determining saleability, but it's, but it's, it's inherently like a qualitative measurement. Right. So I actually read today on the podcast, um, the bullish case for Bitcoin part one, I hope you've read it. Um, it's Genesis and the origins of money. And it talks about the um, sort of the history of how currencies developed and how they tend towards one like we're talking about. We're just talking about the efficiencies of being able to transact and trade. Money tends towards, you know, the most efficient and valuable or sought after money. And having multiple different currencies is very inefficient. Yeah, so. both, both from a societal standpoint, but but really from a individual standpoint. I mean, that's what that's where these decisions are made. Or at the individual level, you would rather keep your wealth in the thing that is most easy to liquidate and holds its value best. Um, and then, you know, slowly your peers, peer groups around you realize what that commodity is and they begin to store their wealth predominantly in that as well. And, and then you have these societal networks that make it easier and easier to transact within that commodity or with that commodity. Awesome. Okay. So <laughs> now I'm going to throw a curveball at you and I want to, I want to look forward into the future and I want to think about what the future is going to look like. Um, let's say in the year 2140. Okay. <laughs> so 2140, whenever, there are no new Bitcoins being added to circulation. So we're talking about an actual fixed supply currency. There's no no new supply being created. Everything that's in existence is there to stay. How do you see the network 
maintaining its superiority? Do you think transactions um, on the base layer are just going to be so high that it just, you know, it keeps miners? Or do you think, like, what do you think? Honestly, I'm just asking. Let's just, <laughs> let's just you know, kind of visualize a little bit. Um, yeah, over time, as the block subsidy, so, so as background to listeners, um, right now, every 10 minutes, new blocks of Bitcoin are mined roughly every 10 minutes. And those new blocks have 6.25 Bitcoin in them. Every four years, that new Bitcoin or, or the amount of Bitcoin in each new block is reduced in half. And so roughly four years from now, it's going to be cut down to 3.125 Bitcoin. And then four years later, it's going to be 1.66 or one point five eight Bitcoin or whatever. You get the point. Cut in half, down, down, down. Um, every four years until 2140 when um, there are no new Bitcoin mined per block. Um, and so all the, the Bitcoin at that point will be in existence and stored in, in various UTXOs, unconfirmed transaction outputs. Um, and um, yeah, and at, at that point, the um, sort of the, the question is whether the security model of Bitcoin will be fine. Um, because right now, miners are incentivized to, uh, to mine and participate in the network pri- primarily because of, the, um, because of the, the miner subsidy. I think it takes up 92% roughly of, of what they earn, whereas in the future, um, you know, when they aren't earning any more new Bitcoin, in 2140, all of their earnings will have to come from transaction fees. So presumably, uh, transaction fees are going to go up on the base layer. Um, and that will sort of force more and more transactions onto layer two and three, layer two probably being lightning. Um, and and so the question is, I guess, whether whether that security model will be fine, which I, I think it will. <laughs> It'll absolutely be fine. The amount of miners on the network will just always uh, always adjust up and down according to their incentives. So if, if new miners, if, if people can make money by providing hash power to the network, they will add hash power to the network, and that will be enough security for the network. If all of a sudden uh, there is, that becomes inefficient to, or there, there are better things to do with that electricity and, and people's time than add hash power to the network. If there are opportunity costs greater than uh, mining Bitcoin, then those people and those miners are going to seek those other fertile lands and, uh, and do other things with their electricity. Either way, um, the Bitcoin protocol, like the, the, the mining... Uh, or the, the difficulty adjustment will adjust up and down um, so that blocks still keep coming every 10 minutes. But ultimately, like, it, it doesn't... This, it doesn't really matter whether you have uh, an enormous amount. It doesn't matter whether the hash power is a billion times what it is now 
or if the hash power stays at roughly what it is now. Either way, the security provided by the miners will be adequate for the wealth stored on the network and for what they're doing and, and the services they're providing, if that makes sense. <laughs> so I think I think the security makes sense. I mean, I, th I think we could handle even if hash power. Okay, so hash power is basically the number of people that are mining on the network, uh, contributing computing power to the network. They measure it in hashes. Um, so I, I think that makes sense. The question I have is more on the usability side for users. So if they are sending transactions on the base layer, or let's say it's a, you know, more of a distributed bank or whatever is going to happen in the future that is settling most of their payments on the base layer, um, are they going to have like are are they going to be okay with transaction fees being that high um, to make up for the subsidy that is lost? So we're we're assuming yeah, like, that you're saying, we're, you're saying that we're, users are going to be uh, are not going to want to use Bitcoin on the base layer because the, the fees are so high. I'm I'm asking your opinion of why you think that that that's something you should think about because whenever the some of the first people that get introduced to Bitcoin, they see an alternative currency and they're like, okay, the tra transaction fees are lower. So yeah. explain to them why using bitcoin even with higher fees is a better option than using a ripple with near zero trans or transaction fees yeah so in short it doesn't matter how low the fees are if your network is worthless <laughs> and so so you can have zero fees but if you're transacting an item that is worth nothing then your zero fees isn't really important or useful. Um, you, you want to store your wealth and use money that has enormous amounts of value and that, that has a, a consist a, and that has the expectation that we'll be able to store value into the future. And most alts do not have that expectation. You cannot trust that Ripple or Ethereum or even Litecoin, anything, is really going to store value the same way Bitcoin does into the future. And so you, you don't want to take a bet on that. So even if you can send money really fast with on, an, on another network, you don't want to hold your money on that network for long, long periods of time. You'd much rather hold your money on the network that is going to increase in value the most. And that's going to be the Bitcoin network. Um, when you go to transact with Bitcoin, you are going to have to make a decision about the trade-offs you want to make and, and how much security you want for each transaction. And as the transaction fees will increase, likely it will become more and more lucrative for you to move your, many of your transactions onto the lightning layer, onto layer two, um, which is not nearly as secure by any means. Um, however, it's, it's far, far cheaper. And when you right. make okay. transactions things that really matter, you're going to want to settle those on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so maybe in today's dollars, you know, you go to buy a house or a car and it's going to cost you in 2140, it's going to cost you the equivalent of 
$10 to settle that transaction on the base chain, that's worth it to you because you're making a big financial decision. When you're just buying coffee over the Lightning Network, you're not going to use the Bitcoin blockchain to do that um, because it, it's too expensive to, to, for the assurances, for the guaranteed insurances um, that the, the base layer provides. And so you're going to move those types of transactions up to Lightning, up to layer two. And over time, you know, you'll, you'll likely have hundreds, thousands of small transactions. And then when you want to, you can trustlessly settle those back down to the base chain. And so you can build up a sort of a, a large amount of, of sats stored on the Lightning network. And then when you're ready, you can trustlessly move those onto the base chain, settle those in one transaction and pay sort of $10 um, for the assurance that like, yes, those are in your own hardware wallet um, on the Bitcoin blockchain. That's exactly the answer I was looking to lead you towards. So, you're leading me towards answers here <laughs> yes yeah i yeah I, I, I want you to explain it to people because i have been telling my friends for years to not buy things that say they have low fees but it means a di it's a little bit different whenever somebody that actually you know works at a bitcoin company says it and i think it makes a lot of sense right so you know, you're going to settle large, important transactions for, you know, if you're buying a house or you're buying a car or whatever you're buying on the base layer, then you're going to move sort of uh, innocuous transactions like a coffee or, you know, whatever you're whatever it is, you know, buying something at Walgreens up to the layer two protocol. So we keep talking about lightning. Um, I think I may have mentioned it before on a previous podcast. So you have the base layer of the blockchain, which is Bitcoin, um, takes around 10 minutes or so to settle transactions, and it's the safest way to tr settle a transaction. You have now a layer two protocol, which um, basically does not settle every single transaction on a base layer. So Reed and I can send money back and forth pretty much as, as often as we want. And then whenever Reed gets, you know, a Bitcoin in his wallet and he's like, okay, I'm ready to cash out now. He can settle that back down on the base layer. So you'll be, you know, and it's much cheaper for us to do that. We can send money back and forth for a near zero amount, you know, very, very, very cheap, much cheaper than the transaction fees on the base layer. So yeah, I think that's, it's a perfect example. <laughs> so now tell me, tell me about Swan Bitcoin. Yeah, so we're a Bitcoin exchange, or really a, a Bitcoin savings platform. Um, so we try and make it as easy as possible for people to save money in Bitcoin um, and to, to exchange their dollars for Bitcoin. Um, and it's a relatively new company. Uh, we sort of started with a Give Bitcoin product about a year ago and then launched Swan this winter. Um, and I've been working with Swan as customer support for about two and a half months now. Um, and yeah, really like my job, really like, really like what the company's doing. And, and uh, I think we have sort of a long-term view of Bitcoin, not, not as a speculative asset, not as something to trade, but really as a way to help people build and protect their wealth. 
Um, so that's sort of our vision of, of what, what Bitcoin's greatest use case is. And we're trying to help Americans right now um, realize that and, and help them store their, their value in Bitcoin. So what specifically are you guys doing that's different from another platform? Yeah, good question. Because, you know, right now there are a ton of places that you can buy Bitcoin from and, and you can also buy uh, other cryptocurrencies in, in many, many different exchanges. Um, so one of, the, one of the biggest things we do is we just don't sell other cryptocurrencies. <laughs> we think that 99% of them are outright scams and the other 1% likely won't keep up uh, with Bitcoin as an asset and, and so just aren't really worth investing. And, and so um, we guide people only towards Bitcoin. And, and there are probably five or six companies in the U.S. that, that are like that, are, that are just sort of selling, just focusing on Bitcoin. Um, a lot of the other ones, a lot of the other exchanges that you've heard about, uh, exchanges like Coinbase, uh, Kraken or Binance, a lot of the big players, they make most of their money selling altcoins and getting people to trade altcoins. Um, and, um, you know, that's a respectable business model. But it's just not the business model that we're in and not the business we're in. Um, we're helping people slowly accumulate Bitcoin for the long term, not trying to help them time various pump and dump schemes. Um, and then, yeah, and, and sort of operating essentially like a, crypto casino <laughs> is what right what what finance or kraken are really doing now which again is a functional functional business but just not um in our minds sort of the, the long-term direction of what bitcoin can offer um so among among our peers you know the four or five six companies that that only sell bitcoin um the thing that separates us from from the other four or five is that we're the only company that offers automated Bitcoin or automated withdrawals from your bank account, automated purchases of Bitcoin and automated withdrawals of that Bitcoin to your own wallet. So most other companies, um, you know, you either have to wire money into, um, so it's not an automated pull from, or most other companies don't have a way for you to automate a withdrawal. Um, and, and one of the things that sets us apart, I think, is, is we aren't really interested long term in holding people's Bitcoin for them. Um, we'll, we'll do it absolutely for beginners, people new to the space. Um, but over time, we're educating our users to make them feel comfortable withdrawing the Bitcoin to their own wallet um, and encouraging them to do so. And at least among the, the other our other exchanges that that sell Bitcoin only, we're unique in that regard. Um, we, we really are encouraging our users to self-custody and, and become self-sovereign. Um, and we're, we're not interested in making them dependent upon us to access their Bitcoin at all. All right. we want to do is make it as easy as possible for people to purchase Bitcoin and then hold that Bitcoin. And, and that's sort of the, the use that we're solving. Right. So how are you guys educating them? So as a new Bitcoin user, say they sign up to Swan Bitcoin um, and, you know, they, they sign up for whatever it is, 50 bucks a week mm -hmm. and it's auto withdrawing from their bank account and it's auto stacking sats for them. Um, how are you educating them the need to use a, a sort of cold storage hardware wallet 
cold card, whatever you want to use. How are you educating them on that? Yeah, good question. Uh, we have sort of a variety of, of different avenues. Um, one is is sort of doing general educational material that, that we post to Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and, and whatnot, um, and creating content for those things. Uh, things like Swan Signal Live um, that we have and writing our own articles um, and sort of posting those to, to social media. Um, and that sort of is education for the general population. Um, in terms of education for our specific users, we also have newsletters that go out to both the customers and, and non-customers, but sort of more specific ones that go out to our customers, teaching them about best practices and, and sort of... Um, Helping them, helping them build mental models for how to think about Bitcoin um, and, and how it's different from a lot of other assets that they're used to. Um, so we've got sort of social media work. We've got newsletters for our customers. And then we also just have one-on-one -on -one support, um, which I operate. So anytime users have questions, um, they can write into us and we'll be glad to answer them. And I'd say about 50% or more of, of the questions, no, about 50% of the questions that I receive each day are, are sort of general Bitcoin educational questions. Um, people having questions about what a wallet is and what a public address is and how they can generate a public address from their wallet and like where the Bitcoins are stored. Um, really? And so I end up spending a lot of my time um, answering those sorts of questions, which I actually love doing. <laughs> um, so yeah. So yeah, th those I think are sort of the three main avenues we use to sort of general social media, general content creation, um, posting it on the web, um, newsletters and sort of materials specific for our customers. And we're, and we're building that out more too. Um, we'll build out more um, sort of more on-site educational materials as in the next uh, year or so we're, we're planning to do that. Um, and then again, one-on-one, so one-on-one's mm -hmm. with me, um, or, or with Jan or with Corey, our CEO. Um, and those, yeah, those three avenues are sort of how we're educating users right now. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. I actually DM'd you earlier this week and you helped me get my, uh, my Swan Force link back up yeah. so I can uh, start, uh, start helping the people to direct them towards the right place to buy Bitcoin. Yeah. So tell me why somebody who is now looking to get into Bitcoin should be looking to dollar cost average because you get, if I'm right, you guys don't have instant buys, right? You can only dollar cost average. Yeah. We don't have instant buys right now. We, um, we're building that out though. Um, are you going to set a limit on it? Um, so not for wires. Um, you're going to be able to wire in as much money as you want, um, you know, up to, I think 250 million and, and buy Bitcoin immediately. Oh, that. wow. With ACH, um, the limit is about $5,000 per ACH transaction. Um, and so the limit will be, uh, right now we just upped it to twice a week. Um, so you can move in $10,000 a week via ACH. And, and that limit is, is set by the ACH infrastructure system. It's not really set by us. Right, right, yeah, I've seen so that's that. The limit. So, are you are you going to allow people to hold that much on your exchange? So, if somebody were to wire in two hundred and fifty million dollars and buy, I don't even know, twenty five thousand Bitcoin <laughs> or whatever, um, 
would you let them hold that much on their exchange? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we would, <laughs> we would, we would encourage them to withdraw that as well, because again, we don't, we do not want to be storing Bitcoin long term for people. Like our our backend um, security is really strong. We use Prime Trust, um, who's also provides backend security for a variety of other exchanges, um, and all the Bitcoin is stored in people's names. Legally, it's it's in their names um, rather than in, sort of in some amorphous slush pool owned by swan (laughs) Um, that gives users a little bit more security Um, but but yeah for for variety of reasons we're we're much more interested in in having people own their own keys so um so yeah we haven't again we haven't built out the yet the capability to wiring 250 million dollars when we do we'll (laughs) we will hold it for people and then educate them to to withdraw it When is uh is a swan card in the horizon? A swan card, not not for no? not for a while. No. <laughs> That's what you guys need, man. You guys need to get in the hardware wallet space. No, I mean I, encourage them to uh you know get off the exchange and get into uh more secure storage. No, I, again, I think we specialize in in our specialty, which is just getting people to buy Bitcoin as cheaply and easily as possible and smoothly as possible. And I'm going to leave up the, and we're going to leave hardware development to uh, the experts. <laughs> I feel you. I know. I'm just, I'm just messing, throwing ideas out. Um, so tell me, it's like, we're not going to be able to build as good of a hardware wallet as, as. Oh yeah, for hardware. sure. And simply yeah. like, they're not going to be able to provide as low fees and as smooth of a um, experience to buy Bitcoin as we can. So, right. So tell them about the fees. Tell them fees are what, like 80% lower than most exchanges? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's depend, it depends on um, the exchange you use, but somewhere between 25 and 80% lower than uh, Cash App and Coinbase. Um, so right now, if you set up a $50 a week plan with us, the fees are 0.99%. Um, and I think it's something like uh, 2.29% if you use Cash App. Um, so a lot lower right now than, than cash app. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. It's the right way to get people into it. So since we're on the topic already, tell people why it's important to self custody. (laughs) Uh, good question. And, um, it allows, so self custody allows you to be self-sovereign and allows you not to have to trust other people to not not to have to trust other people to hold their promises to you when you're first getting into bitcoin and this seems very strange because most of your life you're used to having other people hold value for you and and trusting that they'll hold that value Um, so you store money in your bank account and you generally trust that your bank is not just going to steal that money from you like you're going to wake up in the morning and it's still going to be there <laughs> um, and one of the the cool parts of bitcoin is it allows you to to do away with trusted third parties so you no longer really need a bank to move your money around you can move your money around easily um, and 
when you when you look deeper and, and deeper into Bitcoin, a lot of um, a lot of what you see about the problems, a lot of the explanations for the problems with the existing financial infrastructure, um, and and really our existing sort of system of governance and our government, um, is that it relies on trusted third parties, and that those trusted third parties eventually break your trust or break contracts with you. And, and those contracts can be broken very slyly in, in ways that you aren't fully aware at the time that they're breaking the contract with you. It's not nearly as obvious as just, you know, stealing all your money outright. Um, it can be much, a much slyer, um, more mischievous way of, of breaking contract with you. Um, but self-custodying your Bitcoin allows you not to have to, to trust anyone else. And it, and um, and sort of it protects you a lot better than uh, than having to trust a bank or a government to to give your currency value. Do you run a node? <laughs> this is a good good question. And to be honest, I am just in the process of starting to spin one up. Um, so what are you what are you going to run? Um, I think. I'm gonna go with um, a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, but I mean, like, what's are you gonna run Raspberry Blitz on it? Mm-hmm. Or are you gonna run? Yeah, yeah, that's what I run, dude. It's it's the best. Yeah. So so as background nodes, well, when you when you first get into Bitcoin, there's a lot to learn, and I'm perpetually a beginner and just sort of continuing to go down the rabbit hole and. Um, Eventually, at a certain point down the rabbit hole, you realize that you you have your own keys. You're no longer trusting other people to take care of your Bitcoin, but you also realize you no longer want to trust people to even tell you how much Bitcoin you have um, or to tell you the rules of the network that you're following. And so at that point, then it makes sense to, to run a node. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm now just getting to that point in the rabbit hole. <laughs> a great spot to get to it's that's that's when you truly start to become your own bank is you you know you can self-custody all you want but if you're still trusting you know your hardware wallet ledger trezor whoever and you're running on their servers to tell you that you have this amount of bitcoin and it's become it's come from you know these utxos you're still trusting and the whole point of bitcoin is to be trustless so the only way to do that is to run a copy of the ledger on your own uh, computer, where they call it a node. It's really just a connection to the network. And you can verify your own transactions. And you can verify that every transaction that your Bitcoin have been involved in have not been spent before, which is very, very important. Because that's the only way you can validate that Bitcoin has a hard supply. So, so I'm glad you're <laughs> what now go ahead. eloquent than me. <laughs> I should be the one interview- interviewing you. <laughs> no, I mean, I have to throw some words in here too. <laughs> it can't just be you talking. I've got to, I've got to stay a little bit. Uh, yeah. I guess uh, to answer your other question that you sort of asked a while ago about DCA and why DCA um, versus trading is that, um, I guess when people first get into investing it, and 
in particular cryptocurrencies, it's very alluring to start to trade them um, because they're particularly volatile compared to other asset classes. And so um, if you time the tops and bottoms correctly, you can make an enormous amount of money. And nearly everyone who, <laughs> who, who gets into Bitcoin initially thinks that they can do that. And it's, they're always lured to try that. Um, and most people learn the hard way that they can't. That uh, I think Arthur Hayes from BitMEX says that 99% of crypto traders lose money and only 1% make it. Um, and most of the time that 1% is either professional traders or people who run uh, pretty advanced algorithms. And so if you are just an average Joe and you try and start trading Bitcoin or really alternative cryptocurrencies in general, your chances are you're going to lose money. Um, and so you're going to get wrecked. You think, you really think that you won't. And I thought that I wouldn't. <laughs> Everyone and thinks I, that. And I'm wrong. You're just wrong. Um, and so, yeah, most or many people come come to that realization either very quickly um, or more slowly and uh, start to see that dollar cost averaging, just sort of purchasing a little bit every week um, will outperform trying to, to actually trade. Um, another reason not to actually trade is like you have better things to do than stare at charts all day. You really do. Like go out, spend time with your family, go do your hobbies, um, make provide value at work. Um, most people who stare at charts are going to underperform the market and, and waste their time doing that. So, <laughs> Oh yeah. And you're, you're trading in, in a completely illiquid market. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's way different than trading in something that has, you know, trillions of dollars being traded in almost every single day. I mean, I, like you're, you're trading in something that's a $150 billion asset. If you're trading Bitcoin, one person that has a lot of Bitcoin can come in and dump and, you know, you, it brings the whole market down. So. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't frame it quite like that. Like, I think it's quite liquid, especially for its market cap. I mean, I think it settles like uh, tens of billions of dollars a day. Um, so it, yeah, it is pretty liquid. And when you say like one person can come in and dump the market just with their Bitcoin, um, really one person can open a leverage trade that, that dumps the market. That's really what I meant was like simultaneously selling while opening a leverage trade. Yeah. And, and if you look closely at Bitcoin's price action, you can see moments when uh, one or a couple players move the market in, in significant ways. Um, I mean, significant five, ten percent. But over time, you know, you zoom out on on the charts, and you can see Bitcoin just keeps going up and up and up. So it doesn't really matter what these big players do in the short term mm -hmm. trading. Like in the long term, it's it's gaining value. Right, and that that's that's the that's like the bull case for for sort of like the the reason you should be looking at dollar cost averaging. Yeah, is because in a short term basis, it can, you know, can really screw you if you're trying to trade it. But if you're just dollar cost averaging, it doesn't really affect you at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and, 
when you first get into it, you, you think of it sort of as like an investment, um, much like you would think the stock market or, or uh, even maybe your house. Um, you think of Bitcoin as sort of this investment that's gaining value in dollars over time. And so you're just going to keep sort of adding to it over time. And then at some point, once you understand the protocol a little bit deeper, something flips in, in people's brains where they stop seeing it as an investment in dollars and they start seeing it as saving um, and sort of their base currency. And once you start seeing it as saving, then dollar cost averaging makes the most sense. Like it's no longer you're slowly sort of buying up this speculative asset that you think is going to gain value over time. Um, instead, you're living your life and you're choosing to store your value for the long term in Bitcoin and save value for the long term in Bitcoin. Um, and once that flip goes off in your head or that switch goes off in your head, like you can't imagine doing anything other than DCAing into Bitcoin because <laughs> like it's by far the safest yeah. place to store your money for the long term. I know. It's not it's... investment. It, it is the lowest risk asset that you can have. Um, so of course you're going to save money in that. And then, you know, maybe you choose to invest sometimes in, in other things. You want to open a, a coffee shop. And so you choose to invest in that coffee shop from your savings that are in Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, once, once you get to that point, uh, you, you can't really unsee the benefits of dollar cost averaging. Like that is the end game of yeah. your Bitcoin educational journey. Or in, in terms of your accumulation strategy, that's the end game. There, I mean, <laughs> the accumulation strategy after a certain point is just like, I can't get enough. Yeah. Whenever you really start to fall deep into the rabbit hole and you really see it, like you have that aha moment and the flip just, the switch just flips. You're like, okay, the only thing I can really do is just try to get more because it's not measuring it in dollar amounts. It's measuring it in Satoshis mm -hmm. and it's like, I'll never have enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You sort of see the inevitability of the whole world switching onto this as the base currency and yeah and it just becomes incredibly lucrative for you to to buy bitcoin really regardless of the price in dollars cuz you recognize bitcoin in 10 years 50 years is going to be worth so much more um than than the dollar value right now yeah and that really goes into like money and inflation and what money is <laughs> Yeah. We could go deep, man. I don't know. I don't know how much time you have. I'm getting tired. Uh, about 10 more minutes. 10 minutes. <laughs> Ask me a question. Let's flip it around. Yeah. Um, so I guess what, what has been the most recent light bulb for you with Bitcoin or the most recent realization you've had about Bitcoin? The most recent realization for me has really been around this podcast. So it's been, okay, you know, I can stack forever. I can continue to do my own thing and not care about people, or I can find a way to actually contribute to Bitcoin um, and, you know, educate people on this. And that's, that's what I would like to do with this podcast is, 
you know, not just my friends and family and people that listen to it that know me, but also grow it to a point where they find the content that I'm producing interesting. And they actually, you know, they listen and they, they educate themselves. And I, I point them in the right direction of, you know, if this is your first time uh, buying Bitcoin, you know, you're not going to like an exchange that's going to, you know, rob you and then, you know, whatever it is, or if you need, you know, eventually if when we get into the more technical ones, if you want to understand how it works and, you know, then we get into cold storage and lightning network and all that stuff, like, um, Oh, really? That's really that's really where my my interests have been lately is just like how can I create useful content that people find interesting around something that's very just technical in nature that when you first hear it you may not find it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Follow up is how do you deal with uh, or how do you think about the paradox that that Bitcoin doesn't need you as an educator, but you feel drawn to help contribute to it. Ooh, that's a good one. That's one I haven't actually thought of. So I think it's more just like there have been very few things in my life that I have been so passionate about that I I need to make my mark on it, if that makes sense. It's like I know Bitcoin's going to last. I know that the the Bitcoin that I have right now is going to be passed down uh, through my family for generations. But it's like, I've, I'm so passionate about how early we are. And I was thinking about this earlier this week. It was like, just like how many wallets, um, how many Bitcoin wallets are like in existence. And then you look at like how many wallets the average person uses. It's like, if you have decent OPSEC, you know, you're using 20 to 40 or 50 wallets or if you've been in it a really long time, who knows, maybe you have a hundred wallets. Um, and there's only like 52 million wallets, like at all. <laughs> so it's like what, maybe three or 4 million people in the world actually own like a decent amount of Bitcoin. That's pretty wild to think about. So it's like, we're this early. Um, and I feel a need to sort of get my name out there and make a you know make a mark on it like be known as somebody that um you know wasn't like obviously anybody who is interested in bitcoin is interested in the monetary aspects of it and you know you know securing yourself financially for the future is definitely something you should be concerned about whenever you get into bitcoin i feel i think that's like one of the main reasons that people get into it i had um you know a family friend he's a little older call me this week and was talking to me about it was like i think this is you know with all the money that the fed is printing like this is the safest way to go and we talked for like you know like an hour or whatever um i i just i feel it's important that's really that's really it it's not about making a lot of money and it's about you know having good conversations and fun dude this was a fun hour like i had a good time so yeah yeah well i'm i'm really glad that you're you're starting to produce more content and we we really do need it uh, yeah because there's there is a lot of bitcoin content out there now and there's also a lot of terrible scammy content out there now uh, right and so the more good stuff we have the, the more hopefully somebody who's new to the space can can chance upon something useful and, and good and, and won't get caught up nearly as much in the scams because those scams are not going away. Um, 
anytime soon. So the more we can flood the market with helpful, helpful content, the better. So thank you. Yeah. And that seems like it's a, uh, sort of an ethos at Swan too. I feel like everyone there has their own podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do. Have- <laughs> uh, and, and actually Brecky has, has sort of a, a side one with Tantra labs. Um, and Jan goes on podcast a lot. So, and I'm, I'm starting to go on podcast too. So all of them. Yeah. Let's get you on there, dude. Let's get the, uh, the Zen Bitcoiners podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, between, between you and me, there may be an announcement about that in the coming month. We'll see. Yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, man. Uh, so we're coming up on an hour now. You want to tell them your Twitter or anything else you want them to follow you at? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, my Twitter handle is Reed Womack, at Reed Womack. Um, so follow me on Twitter. And if, if you know, you're a beginner who's new to Bitcoin, strangely, Twitter is, is probably the best platform. So I would, I would check it out and, and follow some famous Bitcoin names and start learning from them and seeing, seeing what the conversation is on Twitter. Um, and then if you want to sign up with Swan Bitcoin, um, you should sign up at swanbitcoin.com slash readwomack and you'll get $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account. Um, so that's pretty sweet. And you can start a plan that's as little as $10 a, a month and start accumulating a little bitcoin for yourself and for your kids for your grandkids exactly all right reed good stuff looking forward to meeting you this week this weekend at bitblock boom um that's about it guys yeah thank you thank you